Well, if you would turn your Bibles to Hosea chapter 4, we're going to return to our study of Hosea, and this summer we are attempting to move somewhat quickly through this Old Testament prophetic book. And tonight we are going to look at chapter 4 and 5 and the first three verses of chapter 6. So there will be quite a bit of reading of Scripture. I want to encourage you, as before I read, to listen for certain themes. Um, We've learned already that God has commanded a young man named Hosea to take to himself a wife that he apparently knew would be unfaithful. Um, this very painful situation that Hosea's own marriage would be a walking, living example, illustration of the brokenheartedness of God, of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and of the spiritual adultery and harlotry of Israel and Judah, the people of God. Now in chapter 4, still keeping in mind the, the theme of spiritual infidelity, God now enters into a judgment with Israel and Judah. It's more of a courtroom scene. And in chapter 4 and chapter 5 in particular, there's a series of charges that are brought forward and leveled against Israel. And this is not random. Remember that at Mount Sinai, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt, at Mount Sinai, God entered into a covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. So God is not um, uh, over the top in speaking of their adultery. He had entered into a very solemn, binding covenant, and Israel had broken that covenant. And so here is more of a courtroom scene. In a sense, it's like a divorce court that God is leveling charges against Israel and Judah, vindicating his own name and his own judgment in withdrawing from Israel and Judah. But I want to encourage you, before we even read the text, you're going to hear a lot of sad things, again, in chapter 4 and chapter 5. But the text tonight ends on a glorious, joyful note, as we have in three verses of chapter 6, a little window into a a renewal of Israel and Judah, of a repentant remnant that prays to seek the Lord. And we have a beautiful teaching on the faithfulness and the certainty of the character of God when we humble ourselves and turn to him. So listen for notes of of, um, charges against Israel and Judah, and then especially listen towards the end for the hope that there is when Israel and Judah repents and turns to the Lord. Beginning in God's word, Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to the word of Yahweh, O sons of Israel, for Yahweh has a contention against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth or loving kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing of oaths, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They break forth in violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who inhabits it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. 
Yet let no man contend, and let no man offer reproof. Indeed, your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from ministering as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I myself also will forget your children. The more they multiply, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into disgrace. They will eat the sin of they eat the sin of my people and lift up their soul toward the, their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and cause their deeds to return on them. They will eat but not be satisfied. They will play the harlot but not break forth in number because they have forsaken Yahweh to keep harlotry. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away a heart of wisdom. My people ask their wooden idol, and their diviner's wand declares to them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with cult prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty, and also do not go to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear the oath, as Yahweh lives. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can Yahweh now feed them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let them alone. Their drink gone, they play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love disgrace. The wind binds them up in its wings, and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread out on Tabor. And the revolters have dug deep into slaughtering, but I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know Yahweh. Moreover, the pride of Israel answers against him, and Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. They will go with their flocks and herds to seek Yahweh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have borne children of strangers. Now the new moon will devour them with their portions. Blow the horn in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Make loud shout at Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of reproof. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is true. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. On them I will pour out my wrath like water, 
Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to walk after man's command. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim and like rottenness to the house of Judah. Then Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his sore. So Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your sore. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. Come. Let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us pursue to know Yahweh. His going forth is established as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the late rain watering the earth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it is a little difficult to come to this text uh, this evening after our sermon this morning in Second Peter, which, in which God denounces through Peter false teachers. And here we are on Sunday evening and we come and we hear more judgment. In fact, that can be difficult uh, with much of the Old Testament as we see the unfaithfulness of Israel and Judah confronted by God and his prophets. And yet as we give ourselves to every portion of God's word, there is much gold to be found. And this portion tonight is particularly choice for us. There are lessons here that we need to learn, and there are lessons here that the church in our present hour desperately needs to hear and learn. And I want to encourage you again that though we will spend a few moments looking at the charges of Israel and Judah's infidelity, of God's judgment, I want to remind you that tonight, and in fact the history of Israel and Judah, will close with a word of great solace, hope, and comfort. We begin tonight in chapter 4, verse 1, with charges of spiritual infidelity. As I said, it's a courtroom setting. God is entering into court. He's bringing a suit, charges against the people that he had entered into a solemn covenant with. The priority is Israel in the north, and so many of the names here, Ephraim, some of the towns are the significant towns of Israel in the north. But you'll notice, as I read, several references to Judah in the south as well. Though they've been divided as nations for several hundred years by this point, in the mind and the heart of God, he entered into covenant with them as one people. And so he begins with these charges. 
And in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, first, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel and our God, he notes that Israel has broken his law. The summary of the covenant that was made between God and Israel is, is in the Ten Commandments. And you remember the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5. You don't need to turn there, for example, but you remember that God recounts his faithfulness to Israel, how he brought Israel out of Egypt, and God commanded, you shall have no other gods before me. They were not to make an idol, that is, they were not to make an image of God, even if it was supposedly of Yahweh, that was off limits. They were not to take the name of Yahweh in vain, which God reproves them for in Hosea, saying, as Yahweh lives, throwing around the name of God as though it were a charm. They were not to make idols. They were not to worship and violate the Sabbath. They were not to commit murder or adultery or steal. They were not to lie and bear false witness. They were not to covet. And in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, God brings forward the evidence, the reality that on large scale, Israel has violated every single one of his commands. There is willful breaking of Yahweh's law. And along with that, there is culpable ignorance of the Lord. In verse 1, there is no truth or loving kindness and no knowledge of God. This theme, verse 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We often think of not knowing something as innocence. We often think, well, I didn't know, officer, is a valid way to be innocent. But here is a culpable, in other words, responsible ignorance. Israel had the law of God, had among all the peoples on earth the privilege of having the revelation of God given to them and recorded in Holy Scripture. But they willfully, persistently rejected it and did not want to know what was written. They did not want to listen to the prophets and they frankly did not want to know God. And this is such a characteristic of the church today. It's haunting. People are tired, too wearied to trouble themselves to press on to know the Lord. It takes a lot of time and effort. It's incredible that for folks who most, for the most part, maybe it maybe attend one service a week these days, and I'm not suggesting that there's anything particularly spiritual about attending more than one service, but my point is that in our day, we groan of one service if, if the teaching is maybe too hard or demands too much of us. Not, not so much you. I mean, you, 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 were, you hung in there with me again this Sunday morning. But generally speaking, this is our generation. This is, this is the characteristic, unfortunately, of the professing church of the day we live in. There's really not much heart for pressing on to know the Lord. We want the pastor to give us some, some inspiration, something practical from living my week. God really needs to know me and my situation, but we really can't trouble ourselves to know God and his character and his glory. 
It's too hard, takes too much effort, too much time. It's, it's a damning indictment and a serious, serious sin to willfully remain ignorant of the Lord. There's along with this breaking of Yahweh's law, ignorance of Yahweh and his character, there's in verses 4 and 5 a permissiveness of sin. God, Yahweh is being uh, cynical there in verse 4. Let no man contend. In other words, let no man offer reproof. In other words, all this sin is going on and it's common, but nobody wants to judge anyone. There's, there's no going to someone and saying, hey, what are you doing? No one has the courage. No one has the moral fortitude. No one has the character. The men in particular have no courage to confront sin when it's blatant and open. Everybody is permissive. It's understood as see no evil, hear no evil. Just kind of go along. So God mocks that. But the reality is there's a permissive spirit combined with an intolerance. This is so descriptive of our day, isn't it? There's a permissiveness of sin. Pretty much anything goes in the culture and in the church, unfortunately, in our day. But along with that, there is an intolerance of authoritative teaching. Verse 4, your people are like those who contend with the priest. Now, in this verse, this is most likely a faithful priest. The priests were charged to instruct the people in the law of God. And apparently, there were here and there scattered a few faithful priests who were making an effort to instruct the people in the ways of the Lord, and the people wouldn't have it. They voted those priests out of their livelihoods. They voted with their feet. They would contend. They would just nitpick. Boy, does that describe the day we live in. People don't want to hear the authoritative word of God and the kind of teaching we want today. Typically, though, the pastor, the teachers have to, they can teach authoritatively, maybe, but then they have to so qualify it that by the time we're done qualifying it and giving all the exceptions to it, it's really come down. There's no bite or edge to it. And so the people contended with it. There was a general permissiveness, but there was an intolerance of authoritative biblical teaching. It describes the day we're in. So the judgment was, verse 3, the land mourns, the inhabitants languish. We know what this is like. We're living in a culture right now where we, we enjoy our lives. We rejoice in the Lord. We enjoy fellowship. We are thankful for God's gifts. But we feel with this wickedness and this culture increasing around us, there's a sense of languishing, isn't there? That's a form of God's judgment. And even the beasts of the field in Israel's day and the birds of the sky and even the fish of the sea. In other words, God's judgment upon Israel and Judah included, included the very land itself and the creatures. And this is Romans 8, what Paul says, all creation groans and longs for the revealing of the sons of God. In other words, even right now, the creation that we see uh, uh, trying to live is groaning, longing for this day of God's judgment and the curse to be over. 
So the land mourns. The prophets, verse 5, give in to the wishes of the people. This is a frightening thing. The verse 5, the prophet, the priest, will stumble with you by night. In other words, you push against biblical teaching long enough and God will judge a people, a church, by giving it what it wants. And the pre- it'll be one of the judgments that will be uh, given later is that the pastor teachers, if you will, the priests, the prophets, will just become like the people. They'll become ignorant too and as much engaged in sin. So the land mourns, the prophets give in to the wishes of the people, and Israel, Judah, are rejected as God's priest. Verse 6, I will reject you as ministering as my priest. Israel was selected among all the nations of the world to be as a priest between God and the rest of the nations. Israel was to relay to the nations something of the law of God, the glory of God, so that as the surrounding nations saw Israel, they would know how it would be that they could be reconciled to God. Privileged position. They were a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Peter later quotes that passage. God rejected them. They would lose that unique privileged status and so this is the first charge, that, that Israel broke the law of God, violated the law of God. Secondly, in verses 7 through 19, then God moves on to the evidence that they corrupted the worship of God. They, they corrupted, it was corrupt worship. They worship, verse 7, not God, not their glory. That is their verse 7 when God says, I have changed their glory into disgrace. Their, the things that they gloried in, God would make into a shame. God was to be their glory, their great thing. God was their glory, but they exchanged their glory for a lie. And as Romans 1 tells us, created the, worship the created things rather than the creator. And so here is a description of of idolatrous worship, vain worship. Verse 8, it's aided and abetted by the priests. They eat the sin of my people. What do you mean they eat the sin of my people? The people engaged in worship that was not given by God, not instructed by God, and so the food offerings that were awful offered in a wrong way or maybe offered to Baal and Asherahs, the priests ministering in the name of Yahweh would take that food and eat it. And so God says, effectively, the priests were living off the, the idolatrous worship of the people. Again, that scene is described today. That scene describes today, as we saw in Second Peter this morning. They are, minister- they are worshiping vain idols. They are lifting up their soul toward their iniquity. They are, verse 12, described as wooden idols, diviners' wands. So they were involved in all kinds of mysticism, worship of images of Yahweh, like the golden calves, but along with other pillars and such. And God calls all those things iniquity. 
And so the judgment, verse 9, described, it will be like people, like priests. That is a frightening little phrase in Holy Scripture. Like people, like priests. There's a lot to be reflected on there. That one of the judgments upon God's people, and it could be upon a church, is when the pastors or the prophets, the pastor teachers, essentially become no more informed and just as sinful as the people. This is, this is a little tough for us to understand because we're from New Hampshire and we are hypersensitive to the Roman Catholic system, rightly so, where the priest is considered as the, you know, the big guy, um, does his worship while everybody watches him up front. So rightly so, we are, we are especially in New Hampshire here, uh, a little bit sensitive to there being any distinction whatsoever between clergy, if you will, and laity, right? And we know certainly in the New Testament that the apostles even humbled themselves, that Peter considered himself a fellow shepherd, a fellow believer, a slave. But when the character of the pastors is... And the knowledge, the biblical knowledge of the pastors is, is no more, is no higher than your average ordinary believer who's maybe doesn't know much. The church is in a bad way. This is not a distinction. There shouldn't be a distinction based on, you know, dress or, you know, outward external things. But absolutely, your pastors should know more. We should demand that they know more. And their conduct should be what Paul says to Timothy. Your, let your conduct be an example, be an example to the believers. Exemplary. And one of the judgments upon a people, a church, is when they persist in breaking God's law and I vain worship. God will give them pastors that are just like them, caught in the same sins, really don't know much more than they do. And so the people and the pastors are bound to ignorance. It's a terrible situation. God's going to judge them, Israel and Judah, for their ways. There'll be a justice. Their deeds will return on them. In verse 10, they will, even the priests, as they eat these sacrifices, in other words, as they profit from the worship, false worship of the people, it won't be satisfying. And they'll play the harlot, but there won't be any children from it. In other words, there won't be any multiplication. We only need to look at the liberal Protestant churches here in New England to see that path. They're dying all around us, and those big white shells, or some of them times white brick with a white steeple, they're empty and have about 15 or 20 people, and the only way that they're surviving, the places with the rainbow flags in front of them, is because someone left a big endowment. They're not multiplying. When's the last time you heard someone really excited, a young person, about their liberal local congregational church? Spiritual harlotry ends in death. It's a death nail for a church. 
or denomination. So there's judgment here of corrupt worship. The corrupt worship then in verses 11 through 14, we need to move more quickly, is described. I need to move more quickly. It's carnal. Um, it's very, it's not what God commanded. So they are not worshiping God the way that God ordered. God was to be worshiped in Jerusalem at the temple. They are burning incense on the hills, verse 13, under the oaks, poplars, and terebinths. And God may here be quoting one of the, the reasons that came out of the mouths of people. Can't you hear someone complaining about traveling down to hot Jerusalem and uh, the journey's so long and, and so forth? And, you know, I mean, we don't want to be strict and legalistic. You know, I mean, God is everywhere, isn't he? So shouldn't we be able to worship God wherever? And, and um, you can hear Israelites maybe reasoning this way. And, and after all, those big oak trees on a hot day, I mean, under the shade... I just feel like it's much more comfortable to worship God there. (laughs) It was pragmatic worship. And uh, hey, I like shade as much as the next person on a hot day. But when God has commanded something of the church, what we are to do, we are not to evade that. We are not to worship God how we feel he should be worshipped. We are to worship God in the way that he has revealed that's why we try to be so careful in our worship services to stick close to the word of God, to sing songs that are true and so forth. We, we don't have, um, there's nothing wrong with drama, but we don't have any drama or interpretive dance. And some of you think that's a joke and you don't know that that's really happening in evangelical churches around us in, is a form of worship. We are to worship God as he has commanded us to worship him in his scriptures, particularly in the New Testament as new covenant believers. So their worship was uh, carnal and it was convenient, convenient worship. And then in verses 15 through 19, God is recognizing that this, con- this corrupt wor- worship is contagious. It-, it was spreading to Judah and God says, don't let Judah become guilty Don't go up to these towns up in Israel, Gilgal. Bethel, interestingly, in verse 15, is changed. God, God, through Hosea, is is rebuking and making fun of Bethel, of the vain worship of God that was taking up Bethel. Bethel was, the Bethel means house, Beth, Bet of El, Bethel, house of God. And God now is calling it Beth Avon, which means house of emptiness house of vanity. So what seemed to be the happening place in Bethel with one of the golden calves, and that was where the worship was really, was really hot and really, uh, you know, people were really excited about it, and maybe the crowds were loving it. God calls it Beth-Avon, house of emptiness. Because there they would violate the law of God. They would worship God in vain. For example, swear the oath as Yahweh lives. They took the name of the Lord in vain as Yahweh lives as they worship these golden calves. God exposes their stubbornness like a stubborn heifer. God can't feed them. They don't want to be fed. And he even points out in verse 18, they're so persistent in their spiritual harlotry But even when they're done with their drunkenness, even when they're sober, they are so internally motivated to commit spiritual adultery that it doesn't matter. They can can do this while intoxicated, while high, or not. 
In other words, no one can excuse it on the external circumstances. This is an internal motivation. Wow. They play the harlot continually, God says, and their rulers dearly love disgrace. It's a sad scene. Oh, we need to move uh, to chapter 5. In chapter 5, now the scene moves from the corrupt, uh, the breaking of the law, the corrupt worship, to now God describes in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, the extent of the guilt. And you can see there in verse 1, it is the priests, that's the entire uh, spiritual leadership. It is not just the spiritual leadership, though. People can't just blame it on the pastors. The people actually want it this way. So God says, give heed, O house of Israel. And it goes even to the leadership of Israel, O house of the king. So the guilt extended throughout the society. No one, no part of society could blame the other. The laity couldn't blame the clergy, in other words. The citizens couldn't blame the leaders. Everyone was in on it. And so God's judgment is extensive. And he sees it all, verse 3. It's all before God. He knows what they have done. And their sin is so in... They are so steeped in sin. And they are so set in it. Verse 4 is a frightening verse. Did you see that when we read it? Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. They're so set in their ways that they're enslaved. Won't even let them return to God. For a spirit of harlotry is in them, and they do not know Yahweh. Again, that theme of ignorance of the Lord. They do not know God as he is. So the judgment is most frightening. Verse 6, Yahweh, they will seek Yahweh but not find him. He has withdrawn from them. Wow. And that continues to this day. Where a partial hardening, Paul says, has happened, occurred to Israel God has withdrawn from Israel. Not forever, but for now he has withdrawn because they have dealt treacherously against Yahweh. They were not to intermarry with the surrounding peoples, but they have borne children of strangers. This wasn't about race. This was about worship. They were not to mix with the idolatrous pagan practices around them. They were to remain loyal to the Lord, and they just completely ignored that. And so they gave themselves to new moon festivals and that kind of thing. And God says they'll be devoured, all their sacrifices, they along with their portions. God, in verses 8 through 11, describes the judgment that's going to come, in particular through Assyria. Uh, they are don't know this when Hosea was first ministering interestingly this was in the days of Jeroboam II the second and uh, this Jeroboam this was the height of Israel's wealth and prosperity so Hosea is delivering this message at the time when it seems that things are going the best uh, he just seems like a fool but right behind them behind Benjamin one of the tribes in the um, in with Judah and in Israel Judgment was coming upon them from Assyria. Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of reproof. And even the princes of Judah, they are corrupt. To move a boundary was against the law of God, and God would pour out his wrath on them too. 
And the reason for all this, verse 11, is described because he was determined to walk after man's command. There's just two ways to live, according to God's command or man's command. And interesting, in our Second Peter passage, chapter 2, this morning, the Bible, the whole scriptures, is, is referred to as a, as a singular commandment. I didn't note that this morning. And we are to walk according to his command and not man's. So God is going to become an adversary. Yahweh says, verse 12, I'm like a moth. And a moth, I know it doesn't you know, hurt you too much, but it sure will destroy your clothes. And uh, these are the days when clothes are rather costly. And the image here is just as a moth can do a, destroy some intricate and costly clothing, God is going to destroy Ephraim and Judah going to inflict sickness and they're going to cry out to Assyria verse 13 but Assyria is going to become the very tool that God uses to judge them and in fact most frightening in verse 14 and 15 God himself will become like a lion and the picture here is rather grotesque it's of a lion and a a young lion is strong vigorous maybe um, hasn't learned to be uh, shy And this is a picture of a lion attacking a person, as still happens in Africa to this day, and maiming the person just for kicks. This is what young lions will do. Doesn't even necessarily need to eat. Just just maims the person, leaves them there, and tears off pieces and carries arms and legs and so forth back to its den. It's, It's a rather gruesome picture that God presents here. God is going to be like a a violent, bloodthirsty lion. Certainly this happened in Israel and Judah's history. But then in verse 15 is the turning point. I will go away, says God. Again, he's going to withdraw from Israel. He's, He's going to be, if anything, there as an adversary. But as far as being there for them, no, he's going away. He is... He is leaving them until, that precious word, until. It's not forever. God has not judged Israel and Judah forever until they. You know, again, here is why our church teaches that there will be a future for Israel and Judah. This doesn't describe, first and foremost, the church. This is describing the historical nations of Israel and Judah. And until they, who's the they? Israel and Judah acknowledge their guilt, seek my face. And then God prophesies, God declares that in the future, in their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. And here is another one of those little beautiful um, foretastes God opens the window of history. It's like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is one of the the confessions that will be in the mouth of Israel and Judah in the last day, that tiny remnant. And and they they will say the words of Isaiah 53 and look on him whom they pierced. So here is a prayer that will be prayed. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. They 
they recognize that God has been their adversary, and justly so. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. I don't think that is a reference to the resurrection of Christ. I understand that some sermons have been made of that. The reference here is historically, specifically to Israel and Judah. And I don't know exactly how the two or three day time period will be fulfilled, but I think it will. And the point is that after two days, you know someone's really dead. That was the reason for Christ rising on the third day. He didn't rise like two hours after he died. He was died on Friday evening. He was in the grave all day Saturday. And on the third day, by the third day, you know, he's really dead. Like he's not unconscious. He's not breathing. He's in the tomb. And the point is, God will raise Israel and Judah, a faithful, tiny, God-fearing remnant, from the dead, as Ezekiel the prophet will later declare that God will put bones together, the sinews of Israel, and put breath in them and make them alive again. God will raise up the nation that we may live before him. And so here closes with the exhortation, let us know, let us pursue to know Yahweh. Uh, That could be a phrase to put up over the door as you come into our church. (laughs) Not suggesting that, but it wouldn't be a bad one for any church. Let us know, let us pursue to know Yahweh. Yes, know firstly truths, objective truths in his word that need to go through our ears. We need to be here, we need to be taught, we need to know them intellectually, but we know him Firstly, the truth of his word so that we might know him with our hearts and that our affections for God might be aligned with the truth and that we might know his goodness, know his grace, know his loving kindness, know his holiness and love him and adore him for it. Let us know. Let us pursue to know Yahweh. That's why you're here tonight. That's why we need to preach Hosea, teach it, even however stumbling we may try. We need to give ourselves to the entirety of God's word so that we might know all of his character and that he's revealed. So brothers and sisters in Christ, Israel, a remnant in the last day, will will call themselves together and, and urge them, call themselves to go on to know the Lord, to give heed to his scriptures. But we don't need to wait. This is, this is our life's work. Among the various duties that we have, our foremost is to know and to press on to know the Lord. And what hope or encouragement do we have that as we give ourselves, as we acknowledge whatever our sins may be, as we acknowledge our breaking of his law, as we acknowledge any kind of vain worship or that we might be entertaining or engaged in, how, what encouragement do we have that as we confess our sins and as we turn earnestly to the Lord with our hearts, oh, how do we know what his response will be? Well, I don't know. Uh, well, actually, I'm quite sure the weathermen are saying it's going to rain tomorrow and there's going to be clouds. So I'm pretty sure you won't see the sun tomorrow morning. But I'm absolutely sure, 100%, 
that if you happen to be in a plane tomorrow and get above the cloud cover, that at whatever time early in the morning, you will see a blazing globe of fire at a great distance shining so bright that you won't be able to look at it and, re- and maintain your sight. Absolutely certain. Are you agree? The sun will come up tomorrow. <laughs> and more certain than that, more certain than the dawn, is the character of Yahweh, our God. If we humble ourselves, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We may be unfaithful, we may be uncertain, we may be up and down and all over the place, but not God. And he, notice the the he wills. Verse 1, he will heal us, he will bandage us, He will make us alive. He will raise us up. Verse 3, he will come to us like the rain. He will, he will, he will, he will, because he is who he is. And he'll be like a gentle rain coming and gently, kindly saturating the earth and causing life to sprout. That's how God is with us when we turn to him. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. God, we rejoice that in the last days that you will renew a remnant of Israel and Judah and that they will pray that prayer. They will call one another to seek you and to press on to know you. But we thank you that now we don't have to wait. And I thank you for these dear ones here tonight. That's the only reason why they'd be in church on Sunday night is if they wanted to know you. So we would ask that you would keep us in your word and in your ways Encourage us tonight after two rather difficult messages today to remember the certainty of your faithfulness and of your character and your gentle kindness towards repentant sinners. How good you are, O God, that when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful, that you love us and that you welcome us. Bless us, we pray. Teach us about yourself, not only with our minds, but with the fullness of our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.